This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. This is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm on tonight with my co-host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Ellie. We're very excited to welcome Dawn Nickel from She Recovers. Hi, Dawn. Hi there, Ellie. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Dawn. And we're going to have a conversation with Dawn tonight. She runs the website She Recovers. Is it SheRecovers.com? Dawn, do I have that? It's actually or dot, she recovers dot co. That's co. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And also has a very popular Facebook page that you can find by searching for She Recovers. And we'll be speaking with Don tonight about a number of topics. A lot of one of which is going to be about different pathways to recovery and also recovery advocacy. And so we just want to say that on tonight's show we will be talking about different pathways to recovery. But as always, we do our best to respect the traditions of all recovery programs. And we do not endorse or support any one specific program. And I will give a brief summary of Dawn's very interesting and colorful history. She survived colon cancer in 2005. And after a breakdown from workaholism and a subsequent layoff from a job that she loved in 2001, it didn't take much soul-searching for Dawn to decide that what she really wanted to do for a living was to help other women to recover. Dawn has been in recovery from addiction to drugs and alcohol since 1989 and is well qualified to work with women who want to recover their lives and pursue their passions. Building on her degrees in women's studies, women's history, and a PhD in healthcare policy, all of which were earned in recovery, Dawn is currently completing life coach training with Crossroads Recovery Coaching. 
her true passion is for the community that she has helped to create on her Facebook page, She Recovers, and for other online communities like it. What started out as a daily meditation practice using social media, coupled with a heartfelt belief in her own life's purpose, has turned into a business called She Recovers that, at present time, offers yoga retreats and workshops for women in recovery. And we are so excited to have you on our show and talk all things recovery this evening. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And I think we'll just, I will stop talking and start out with asking you if you just want to share a little bit about your own history with addiction and your pathway to your own recovery. Oh, absolutely. Thanks. And I'll just say that I really want to say how much I respect the work that that you've been doing this past number of years, Ellie and, and Amanda and Lisa as well, with the bubble hour. And I wish that I had this resource when I was starting my recovery journey. But, of course, the, we didn't really have much. I don't think we even had the Internet back in the late 80s. Um, so as much as I sometimes lament that I didn't have access to these pretty amazing recovery-type tools today, I was also thinking last week I was quite amazed and great, grateful that there were no cell phones when I was using <laughs> That's true that, yeah. Of other people. <laughs> or drunk Facebooking. About... I'm, I'm grateful for that, that I never drunk Yeah, I've been an awful lot of drunk dialing in my day, I have to say, but I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that there ever would have been a switch to turn me off of that Facebook. And let's just say when I was using, the pictures wouldn't have been very pretty. So yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I won't talk too long about my story and my addiction. It gets confusing. I moved around a lot. I had a lot of relationships, and most of them didn't work out very well. It gets, the chronology gets a little bit confusing for me, but there were different moments in my addiction that, that stand out for me. And the first couple of kind of moments that I think of when I start talking about my story was that I didn't want to drink. I don't know where I got the idea that I shouldn't because I grew up with a, in a family that, that there was an awful lot of alcoholism and an awful lot of drinking, not a lot of drugs. But for some reason, I got it into my head when I was a teenager that I wasn't going to drink and I wasn't going to do drugs. So the first time that I was supposed to be drinking, I was actually just pretending to be drinking. And I remember I was in Bermuda on a holiday with a friend of mine. My mom had sent me because we were moving across the country and it was my consolation prize. And I remember pretending to be drunk this evening, the whole evening long, like just really being a ham, pretending that I had been drinking it. And I wasn't drinking anything. I was pouring it out. And the same is true for the first time I was invited to do drugs. It was a chemical drug that somebody handed me, and I didn't take it. And then I pretended that I was just completely out of it. I look back, and I think, wow, my instincts were right. I was really afraid to do this stuff. And, of course, the great irony for me and for so many of us was that at the end of my using, I was pretending very hard not to be drunk or loaded or stoned or that stuff. That always, when I think back, that has a lot of meaning for me. And I think that... uh, I just always had this, I don't know if it was intuition or if it was just the universe or whatever else telling me that, yeah, this isn't necessarily the way you should be going. But I left home when I was quite young. There was some insanity going on in in my family. I had wonderful parents. They loved me the very best they could and they did the best they could. But I started drinking and using drugs and they just, they weren't prepared. They didn't know that I was doing that. They wouldn't have known how to stop me, I don't think. I left home at 16 and I went up to the Yukon. For those of you who can situate yourself where Alaska is, the Yukon is the territory, Canadian territory, right next to Alaska. And I just ended up in a lifestyle that was not really built for a 16-year-old girl with no life experience. I ended up hanging out with people who drank quite heavily, a lot of drugs, and I started doing increasingly more dangerous drugs myself, including a lot of pills. And again, I can't explain why, but from the time I was 15 to 20, I was almost always... As often as I was using lots of drugs and drinking a lot, I was trying not to use drugs and drink a lot. I was always quitting. And I remember this one period in particular, it was, I guess it was 
late 19, in the fall of 1980. And I just remember saying that if I can't quit this time, I'm going to go to a 12-step program that, that we knew about. And people in my circle used to joke about going to 12-step programs. Well, I should go to a 12-step program. And I remember saying it and thinking, I'm serious. If I can't quit this time, I'm going to try something. And what happened was I went away on vacation and went to visit my boyfriend, who at the time was going to university in Brandon, Manitoba. And I ended up getting pregnant. And that was, for me, it was what kind of finally led me to try and not use and drink anymore. I did not get through my pregnancy successfully without ever getting drunk. I drank periodically, and I know, I, I recall that I got really hammered once during that pregnancy. had my daughter, and I was just 21 when she was born, and for a couple of years I did really well. I abstained from drugs and drinking and was in and out, mostly out of the relationship with my daughter's father. And when she turned two, it became apparent that we were not going to have a life together. We weren't going to live happily ever after. And so when my daughter was two, I went on a pretty serious, I guess I would just call it a bender, a lot of really unhealthy drug use and drinking. And I did it in a community where I had a lot of support, friends who were older than I and people who I started I would say partying, but that would make it sound like it was fun. Who I started using with a lot in in those five years of heavy use. And they had just grown out of it. And so they'd grown out of it by the time that I was trying to grow back into it. Ended up in a relationship with another man who was also an addict. And we had a, a, a second beautiful daughter. And we were married. And for both of us, we were just sporadic bingers, whether it was drugs or alcohol. We weren't daily and I'm not saying this to, to say that I wasn't as bad as, as other people, but it was just my pattern wasn't to always be drinking or using drugs. It was just that when I did, it, it was insanity. We were together for two years, and my then-husband ended up in the hospital after drugs. And that actually marked the beginning of my journey in recovery. We went to see a counselor. He was let out of the hospital under the conditions that he would see a counselor. So we went to this drug and alcohol counselor who, who said to him right off the bat, you have a very serious problem and you're going to have to give up everything, not just the particular drug that he'd overdosed on. And he basically just got up and said, yeah, that's it for me then. And he was out of there. And I continued to see her for six months and to try and figure out, I don't know about other women necessarily, but I'm as codependent as I am addictive. And so I ended up seeing this counselor for another six months just to try and figure out how to keep him on the straight and narrow, which wasn't going well at all, I must say. And at about the six-month mark, I remember this woman looking at me, and it's one of those moments again, she said, yeah, I don't actually even remember what your husband looked like. I'm not quite <laughs> sure why we're still talking about his problem. Maybe we yeah. should try and talk about yours. And it sounds blasé, but honestly, it was almost like in that moment, I thought, oh, my God, she's right. And I decided that she was right, that I did have a problem. And now that I knew about it, even though I tried to not use and drink for so many years that I'd never called myself an alcoholic or an addict, I realized that was probably the case. And so then for sure, I was never going to drink or do drugs again. And I walked out of that office completely convinced that was going to be the situation. And uh, I made a deal with her, though, that if I did, get, if I did use again, that I would go to treatment. And, uh, of course, within three weeks, I was in treatment because I did, go figure, get extremely drunk. So the last time that I drank was July 20th, 1987. I ended up with alcohol poisoning and was extremely ill. So did go into treatment, came out, haven't had a drink since. And I'm proud of that. But for the first couple of years, oh, in treatment, I actually had to phone my husband. And again, it was the whole ultimatum, the same one that the drug counselor had given him, I gave, I gave to him. And I said, 
we either have a drug and alcohol free home or I'm taking the girls and I'm leaving. And I ended up taking the girls and leaving. So he decided that he wasn't into that life or life without alcohol at that time because he had given up drugs. So I did leave. And for a couple of years, I played around with some other, other, another light drug. Some people call it. I don't honestly believe there's such a thing as a light drug in my life. A drug, the drug, the drug. But after two years, I did. I went back to treatment to try and get off of marijuana. And uh, so 1989, May 15th, 1989 was my serious kind of recovery start date again. And uh, I did a whole bunch of different things. I went and saw a lot of therapists over the years, became involved in a 12-step support group, recovery group, and really got very serious about my recovery. It was really important to me that my girls grow up with a mother who was present to them. And my mom, and God bless her, and may she rest in peace, she was she did the very best that she could, but she did not know how to deal with a kid like me. <laughs> so I didn't get an, I didn't get very much attention or direction, especially when I started things started going off the rails. She just wasn't equipped to deal with it. So yeah, got serious about my recovery. I met a wonderful man in recovery, somebody who had actually known back in the Yukon and who had was also just starting out on the recovery path. We went out as friends for about six months and I still cringe a little bit when I tell people this, but it was one of those one of those I'd known him before, we were good friends, I told him everything I'd ever done in my entire life. And if I'd known I was going to marry him and spend the rest of my life with him, I might have held back on just a few of the details. Um, <laughs> exactly. yeah. I always get to I always get to to follow that up with to his absolute credit. Even if he doesn't remember any of it, or he's just—he's never brought anything up that I told him that you maybe wouldn't really want to know about your wife. So that's good. That's a really good age. He's, right. he's pretty amazing. <laughs> I went back to school, and I, I think I came addicted to it, and, and I stayed for 13 years and three degrees. And I say addicted to it. Like I loved school. I loved learning. I loved reminding myself that there was this great big huge world out there and I did a women's studies degree and I was going to save all the women in the world and then I switched over to history and then to healthcare policy and never really knew what I was going to do with all that education at the end of it and to be honest today I'm still not quite sure not every day anyway but it opened me up to this world of there's a lot more going on out there that I want to be a part of and my world had become so so small and closed in not just in the five years that I was actively using like a maniac but in the, and maybe I skipped over this part, I was 29 when I got into that recovery program and stopped using the drugs and hadn't drank for two years. So I had five years of insanity and then 10 years of really trying not to use before I made some, had some success at that. The other thing is I think I did get a little bit addicted to it because what I realized about myself, and now a lot of this is retrospectively, is that I really liked somebody else telling me that I was okay or that I was mm-hmm. smart. And you're in school, you have a, it's a pipeline of whether you're okay or not. It's either an A or a C. The teachers really like you or they don't. And so I think that I worked out, I had to work through an awful lot of my insecurities in school because I do remember being really sensitive to whether or not instructors liked me. In fact, one instructor once stood up at the front of the class and he said, it was a sociologist uh, and talking about sociology. I think he was talking about, I, I don't remember the topic it, in particular, but he said, for instance, he said, you guys are all here because you want a really good mark. You're not here because you want me to like you or anything else. You just want that A. And I remember sitting in my chair going, oh, my God, he doesn't like me. <laughs> like, what normal person thinks that? It was insane. And I will say that I went to his office as often as I could, and I'm pretty sure by the end of that term, he liked me. So well, that was yeah, probably yeah. Cool. So in recovery, I was raising my daughters and I had a marriage and I had a stepson come live with us and had some challenges around that. And I love that guy. 
like my own today. And I built this amazing life. It was just, it was really amazing. And I think that at a certain point when I was really involved in school, I, I stopped really focusing on my recovery as much. And I think I moved into my head is what happened. And I kind of left some of my spirit, my soul to the side. And I was just busy doing, and I'm a doer. Like I'm a doaholic. That's what I am. And so when my mom was diagnosed with terminal leukemia in 1998, we had a period of 16 months where that became my entire focus was to spend time with my mom, who had gotten very close with. And everybody else in my family was in denial about the fact that she was dying. So I felt like I could be there for her. And everybody else did their very best, too. But it did. It became my obsession to make sure that my mom had a wonderful last year of her life. And she did. So that was great. But when she died in April 2000, I actually was somehow took control of the drugs that were left behind after she passed and the hours after she passed. And it was one of those moments again, like where I was standing over the garbage can thinking, oh, I got to get rid of these. And then I did, and I didn't. And about six days after her funeral, like several days after her funeral, I was out visiting my dad and we were sitting up talking and he was telling me some things and I was getting upset and was trying, it was like the, after 16 months of just being on high alert, things were starting to come down, like, this is real, she's gone, and I don't know, I just went into my little purse where I had put some of these drugs, and uh, honestly, I took them as prescribed, but that doesn't Uh really mean the circles I run in, it was still a relapse, and and that's okay, so I did, I took these drugs every 12 hours for two days, so I ended up taking them about four times, and I felt different, I felt, okay, I can handle this, this is better, I can, I can get the closet cleaned out, and we can take care of all the paperwork, and I was just, again, in one of those moments where, I remember thinking, like, what am I doing? And making the decision that I couldn't continue to do that. And then I did get rid of them and didn't think about it at all for another number of years until my sister, who's also extremely addicted to alcohol and drugs, ended up hitting a bottom. And I took her to a recovery meeting and started to examine what had happened four years before and went back to a therapist and did some work. And today all I can think of is, thank God, I just decided to, wig it back with some vodka or something. Who knows where I'd be today? Who knows where my family would be? So grateful. It was a key moment in my life and in my recovery. I got back on track. Like I said, I got back into therapy. I started going back to my recovery meetings and I completed my PhD and probably got cancer. (laughs) So at the same moment, I defended my doctoral dissertation in the private boardroom of the Dean of Medicine in the University of Alberta Hospital in Edmonton because I had my cancerous colon removed just a week before. And there's no doubt in my mind I'm a researcher and I had colon cancer because I smoked and I drank and did a lot of drugs. And there's, there's research that says that's what happened. That was eight years ago. Eight years ago, June 7th was my surgery. I moved to beautiful British Columbia here, Victoria on Vancouver Island. With my husband, I left my kids behind. They were young women at the time, so we always say we ran away from home. They followed us a year later, so they're here in town now. I remember being here for that year, and it was I got involved in a recovery community again, and then I was doing chemotherapy, and I had stage 3 cancer and had really gone through a lot of my nodes, and I, I thought I was going to die at the end of that year, but I was going to make the best of it, and I had an amazing year. It was the first time we didn't have kids around, and... Uh, I just remember it was really spectacular. I uh, spent a lot of money that we didn't actually have, but I figured, oh, I got the life insurance. It's all going to be good. And so at the end of the year, at the end of the chemotherapy, I remember the doctor saying to me, yeah, it's all clear. You're good. And my husband and I looked at each other, and my first response was, oh, my gosh, I'm going to live. And my second was, oh, shite, I've got so much debt. So, yeah, the last eight years has been about dealing with the debt and getting my getting back on track 
And the last thing I would just say is that I felt like I was quite behind after just finishing my PhD and then having a year of cancer. I did teach a little bit while I had cancer, but I felt like I really needed to make up for lost time financially and just professionally. So I started teaching part-time and working full-time and ended up in a workaholic craze. Like, I actually, when I look at it now, I think I was probably sicker in that workaholic period. And it wasn't 2001 that I, it was actually 2011. So it's only been two years that I grew up again. again. I might have typewritten it wrong too, but so for the past two years, again, it's just another layer of recovery. What made me think that I had to work so hard, like 10 times as hard as anybody else to be okay. Back into therapy, back into my recovery routine. And I have to say that the last couple of years, and with She Recovers in particular, I finally feel like there's still things I'm working on. I need to work on sugar, and I'm going to be doing that. And I have in the past as well. But yeah, I feel like maybe I've nailed some of the really big ones. And just for today, I'm feeling like I'm in a really good place in my life and in my recovery. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Such an inspiring story, Don. Thank you. And I can relate to the dual diagnosis of cancer and recovery from addiction as well and hearing how survive so much. It is definitely inspiring to so many people. Thank you so much for sharing that. And most of our questions, actually all of them probably revolve around your recovery life. And one of the first questions that I had for you is what inspired you to start She Recovers? Tell us the story behind how that came about. Oh, I'd love to. Sure. When I was in my workaholic, when I hit the wall with my workaholism, it was February 2011, and I found myself crying in meetings, like in, in actually executive meetings. Oh. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing, bursting into tears. And I, I yeah. remember driving, I was under so much stress, much of it self-induced, and the other was organizational. I remember driving home one day from work thinking, I am absolutely impaired driving right now. I was blacking out from one corner to the next, and I was shaking, and I felt like I was going to pass out. And oh. I went to my physician, and she said, you need, and I actually, and she said, you need some time off. And I said, okay, I'll take tomorrow off. And as it turned out, I ended up being off for four months. And I had this actually a blog post on, so I started a blog called Recovering Dawn. And I blogged daily for that four months. And it was an exploration. I was back in therapy, exploring through some other avenues. And when I went back to work after four months, I realized that I couldn't blog every day and work and take care of myself. So I thought, I wonder what it would be like if I just, I felt this connection. There was only like maybe 10 or 12 women who ever commented on my blog, but I felt this connection. I felt this, like, the daily kind of process of thinking about where I was at and writing about it or finding a pretty picture or, or a poem. So I wondered what it would be like if I started a Facebook page where I could continue that practice for myself. And again, I didn't have any expectation that anybody else would join me on that page. I thought maybe a few of my friends would. So I started She Recovers in July 
2011. And yeah, it just, again, it just, I was just overcome with the vulnerability of women who would come on there and thank me for, I'd post something and it would make a difference in somebody's life or it was making a difference in mine. So I decided that I would remain committed to it. And I did that. And at the same time, my, my youngest daughter, who she's 28 now, Taryn is her name. And she was a, she'd become a yoga instructor and she was extremely passionate about yoga and also very passionate about recovery because as she says, she's been in recovery since she was four. She's not an addict or alcoholic, but she crazy time. She's just in the process of writing her story. When she was 16, we had several months of, we didn't know which way things would go with her, except that I knew that I would do everything different than how my mother did it, and she might be okay. <laughs> and okay, yeah. she was. So she, at around that same time, decided to go and become licensed to teach yoga for recovery. So she recovers oh, and became this, okay, what are we going to do? Let's do something with she recovers. And so we decided that we would run a retreat. And I have a very dear friend who lives in Mexico who had also had the idea of running retreats for women in recovery down there. But it's not something, it's, there's a lot to it. So the fact that there were three of us yeah. sat and decided we would do it. So we did it. So She Recovers has since become this kind of retreat business on the side or retreat. It's more like a fashion project than a business, I have to say. And the Facebook page just continues to grow. I think we're at 18,000 some. Yeah, it's some it's people. Some lovely men join us on the page, but it's primarily women, and some of them are very vulnerable just on their posts right out in front of the world, and others will message me and ask for insights or direction, and I'll point mm-hmm. them in some direction or another. And then on the face on the web page now, I've started putting up resources. I've got a reading list and also resources, including different organizations and recovery coaching and so on. And the bubble hour is on there and crying out now is on there. Thank you. I, <laughs> Thank yeah, you. <laughs> it sounds always interesting to me to talk to other people who have been involved with recovery both online and off. Mm-hmm. I'm not even really quite sure what my question is around this. I just think that's a really interesting phenomenon. The internet is such a powerful tool to reach so many people who might have the courage to Google something or look at a Facebook page or look at a blog or before they wouldn't have the courage to even talk to anybody in person. And so Mm -hmm. it's such a wonderful way to spread the idea about recovery, just that it works, that it happens, that we're out there, that we understand how you're feeling and can offer some community. What has been your experience? I mean, do you find that there's a vast difference between recovering online and offline or do those two worlds blend a lot for you? Just in general, talking about the phenomenon of recovering online, it's definitely something that's growing by leaps and bounds. So I'm not sure what to say about this. So I've recently been in invited to or joined up in the, on an online group that you're, that you're, um, yep, the BFB, you also we about, right? Okay. Yeah. So we do talk about that. Okay. And I have to say that the BFB is something that I haven't seen before. I've never seen anything like that before. I've, I belong to other groups of women who are in recovery, but they are all specific to one or another type of program, various mm-hmm. programs. And She Recovers is about like recovery, not only whatever pathway of recovery you choose, but regardless of what you're recovering from. And most of us on there and most of the people who engage are recovering from alcoholism and addiction, other addictions, workaholism, et cetera. Others are just recovering, grieving, codependent. So different, like all sorts of, I'd just like to broaden and widen kind of recovery. But with the BFB, I've never seen the vulnerability. And I think that it's particularly special. And it's the same thing. But on BFB, it takes me how many seconds to just say, that's excellent or welcome or me too. And that's the power of it. So what I would say about the online engagement model 
is, I have to throw it back to you and Amanda and Lisa and, and all the other amazing women on that page. It's about the community and how much activity there is on the page and how, how engaging it is. Because I think that there are a lot of groups like that out there, but without kind of having a few people consistently engaging uh-huh. and inviting people to engage, it's not the same. So I guess my, my kind of answer is that the Internet is only as good as we make it. Yeah. And, yeah, I would... Uh, I definitely agree with that. It's, it wasn't amazing to me. I haven't been on there that long myself, Don. And okay. um, it's since I've been on there since November. And actually, Ellie, you said you need to get on this page. I want you to help with the bubble hour, and so you should get to know some of the people that I interact with and that I've been interacting with. And I got on there, and I was like, I was blown away. It's 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 really amazing. But I think it's. What it, I like about it is the intimacy of the size of that group. It's not overwhelming, and I feel like I know the people on there. And, it's, and, it, and I do think it's such a valuable resource, and it's, wow, how do you spread that without diluting uh-huh. it, too? So it's a really interesting mix because I think, the, to me, the reason, part of the reason why it works is because it's like my in-person recovery group where I do know the people and I see them and I'm accountable to them and they're people that I care about and they're a part of my daily life and that's how I feel about this particular, about the BFB. And actually, I've been feeling a little lost lately. I have had zero time to comment or post. Occasionally, I throw a few likes out there and I'm reading things, but I don't have any, I have absolutely zero time to say anything besides, like, awesome, which is fine. There's, it's just such a valuable resource to me. It It is. And you can only do what you can do. That's the thing. There'll be other times when you do have some time. And it it seems like it's such, there's such a strong community of people on there that there isn't anybody going on there, like, asking for help and not getting it. I haven't seen that yet. Anybody who asks for help gets it. And, of course, it's always wonderful to hear somebody with five, with, I don't know, struggling with, on the second day of recovery, saying, I can't do this. Having somebody come on with six days and saying, yeah, you can. That's just always so inspiring. And what I really love about BFB as well is that it isn't just one pathway. It's, It's not, there are women on there who recover in different ways, through different yeah. modes. And uh, I feel really passionately about that, that their you know, 12-step programs just aren't going to be for everybody, and that's just the, the truth, and that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. It's, but it's only okay if we offer them some other alternatives. But I think one of the things that, and Donna, I've had the pleasure of having conversation with you, with you for the show, too, and over the past few weeks of how... This that's a perfect segue to talk a little bit more about sort of recovery advocacy in general and how being able to create these forums, whether they're online or offline in the form of your retreat or on a Facebook page, or that there's these environments where it really doesn't matter how you recover, it just matters that you recover or that you're trying to recover or you're surrounding yourself with people who can help you. And yeah. that it, there's talk about yoga and there's talk about meditation mm-hmm. and prayer for people who pray and 12-step groups mm-hmm. for people who 12-step and there's just being able to, to create a sense of collegiality, camaraderie, and vulnerability just around recovery in general, I think is a really yeah. powerful thing. And it's not without its own controversy, which we don't have to get into because I think really it doesn't need to be anti-anything. It's all pro-recovery mm-hmm. and that's really beautiful thing and I think She Recovers has done a great job of encapsulating that not even just in the addiction community but recovering from any sort of suffering that you might be going through and if you sorry go ahead sorry I was just going to say on that one of the things that happened for me in my recovery is that I grew up with I have a best friend who 
is not an addict or an alcoholic. And she has been my greatest supporter through my, we've known each other since I was 15, which is really when it all began for me. And she's just always been there. And I just wanted to share something with her, right? And so when I was able to talk to her about when she ended up, she's, she was her husband, they ended up divorcing, and it was a very painful period when she learned that this divorce was going to happen, and so she started to talk about recovering from that with me, and I think that that's why I like to be inclusive, is that we have people in our life who may not be in the exact same program we are or following the exact same pathway we are, but we have such connections with them, and that by broadening our outlook a little bit, we get to include it instead of exclude those people. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the feelings are so similar with so many different struggles that people have. The feelings of vulnerability yeah. or shame or hopelessness or powerlessness. Those things are not the exclusive property of people struggling from addiction by any stretch of the imagination. No. The alcohol or drugs aren't the problem, right? They just right. mask the problem. They right. Mask the problem. <clears throat> exactly. I actually I saw it down when you were... Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Amanda. I'm sorry. I was just going to, when, Don, when you were sharing your story, just something I jotted down from the very, very beginning is about you pretending to be drunk or high. And I just think about how, you know, before you actually tried anything, this related to that so much, and it was it spoke to me so much about how this, what we were just talking about, that the the addiction is such is just a a symptom of what's really going on. It's that for me a lot of it was a feeling a need to fit in, wanting to be liked by others. So much of what you said it's such a it's such a common thing in learning tools on how to do that in a positive way. So much to me, and that's that goes to, to, to everything. I've been through divorces. I've been through. I'm one of those people that people tell a story, and I'm like, oh, when I did that, and it's I, you know, it's annoying. I'm like, but I have, <laughs> I've had a lot of things, gone through a lot of things in my life, and but there's just there's so many commonalities to how we get there, and it, and it's not just alcohol or drug addiction. There's the yeah. food addiction and everything, and it's just. It's, very interesting to me. That's one of the first things that you shared before. It, it, that came way before you even touched anything. Yeah. And I think when, that, thank you, Amanda. And I think when we share our story of recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, there's somebody out there. And if we're talking about the feelings and what led us, it's like the desire for connection, that wanting to be liked, all the reasons that I used and drank. If we can talk about that, if we get that message out, more than somebody who hasn't maybe yet changed the brain chemistry the way that they have, haven't gone, haven't used or drank so much that they're, they've gone down the road and they're going to they're gonna have a lot of struggles, then that's a good thing too. I think us spreading the word, and we're talking about recovery advocacy, I think spreading the word that we do recover is preventative, right? It's not just going to help Absolutely. the people who are struggling, but it's, oh, you mean that's why I sometimes think that a drink will fix things, all mm-hmm. that type of stuff. That's another perfect segue to talk about Recovery Day that you've put together. Mm-hmm. I, should, I haven't mentioned that we're talking to you from, that you are in Canada. Is yeah. it Victoria specifically or is it when you're in that area? I'm in Victoria, um, British Columbia. Yeah. British Columbia. Thank you. And I was just fascinated to hear how that came together and trying to learn more about things that are, like, ha- that are happening like that in the United States. And there's lots more of that going sure. on than I was even previously aware. I think I know. Isn't it amazing? So, about addiction. I haven't really been thinking about recovery. So tell us a little bit about Recovery Day and how that all came about. 
So Recover Day came about, the story goes. There were some, a couple of women in Vancouver who actually had, they came across the, the trailer for the anonymous people. And they thought that was pretty fantastic and did a little bit of research and learned more about the organization Faces and Voices of Recovery, which is an American organization. And they decided they would have a recovery day in Vancouver. Now, at the same time that was going on, there was a woman and a gentleman here in, in Victoria who had always talked about doing something like that for a number of years. And then and when they found out what Vancouver was doing, they decided that they would do the same thing. So what it, all it really looked like was they submitted a proclamation to the mayor and asked if he would proclaim, I don't remember the exact date, last September now, if he would proclaim that day recovery day. And Calgary, another Canadian city, found out at the same time as did Ottawa, which is our capital. And so last year... I think I'm getting this right. There were four cities that celebrated Recovery Day. In our city, these two people, actually, one of them was an acquaintance of mine, and she called me and asked if I wanted to be involved. And I said, oh, sure. I don't have a lot of time, but when is it? And she said, oh, two weeks from now. In two weeks. She's a lot like me. Oh, in two weeks, lots of time. So basically what we did was we just started inviting community groups who are organizations, programs, and other nonprofits, and they asked if they wanted to come and set up a table. My daughter set up a table for yoga and recovery. Some people donated some balloons, and we got some face painters, and we just invited anybody who we knew was involved in, in the recovery community here and, uh, and had a beautiful, sunny day. We went from 12 to 4. We invited speakers who spoke about their stories. We had a councilwoman, actually, so I don't know politics in the U.S., so it'd be like your the people who'd sit on the city political thing. We call them council people, council women, councilmen. She actually, for lack of a better term, she came out as a woman in long-term recovery on the stage that afternoon and talked a little bit about her story. And we had another, I think it was about maybe seven people in all told their stories. And that was recovery day. And now we're planning our second recovery day this September 8th. And this year there's about five other Canadian cities that are also going to be celebrating it. So we're all going to be Great. celebrating it on the same day, on, on September the same 8th. Day. Yeah. And September so, is you know, recovery I, month. Yeah. So. When we started doing the planning, though, actually, the model that we looked back at, Vancouver looked very closely, and, and we did as well, was the faces and voices of recovery. Yep. And now there's some activity going on up here. We're forming a, it's just like a steering committee, so it's still in its early stage, Faces and Voices of Recovery Canada, and we've joined, that organization has joined with, I can't remember how it works in the States, but Faces and Voices of Recovery is one entity, and then there's Association of Recovery Community Organizations, yeah. another ARCO, I think it's called. So we've joined ARCO, and we'll just be trying to make this thing go global, let alone just across the continent and Absolutely. across the country. Yeah. Now, oh, and I had a, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just no, could say I, you know, I came out in the paper, actually, to the just a short story about Recovery Day a week before, a few days before, and so I was interviewed, and there was this big picture. It wasn't page one, thank heavens, but it was funny. There was this big picture of me and talking about Recovery Day and me being a recovering person, and it was fine. It was intimidating. It's not a very huge town that I live in, and I actually walked into a business meeting about two months ago, like for my work. I'm a researcher. I have my own consulting company, and. Somebody said, oh, I know you. And I went, oh, do you? I don't remember. And she said, yes, you were in the newspaper. <laughs> in that moment, you're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I said, that's me. <laughs> what do you do? And I, I was going to do my next question, too, me. because I think it's really helpful for people to hear because there's a lot of, we're trying to create as much buzz as we can. There already is buzz. 
happening about, you mentioned the Anonymous People, which is a movie that is being screened across the U.S. and I think that will be distributed more broadly, probably in the yeah. fall. But there's a lot of talk about changing the vernacular and the terms that people use to describe recovery and talking about being people in recovery or people in long-term yeah. recovery and bringing yeah. the celebration of recovery out into the public eye to change a lot of the stigma and break a lot of the stigma that surrounds alcoholism, addiction, and the misunderstanding that people have about the fact that people do recover. I love the slogan of, I don't know if it's recovery day or she recovers or both, but we know that we do recover. And have you personally, or as part of putting together she recovers or recovery day, have you faced anything felt like criticism or pushback or, oh, I call them sometimes vulnerability hangovers where you feel like you're shipped too much or it seems as though it's just helpful, I think, for people to hear who might be interested in being involved in this movement or wishing that they could be more vocal and wondering, what's that like when you walk into a meeting and someone says they saw you in the paper and they know you're in recovery? How it, how yeah. does that take some getting used to for you or how is it that, that you weave that into your daily life? Here's the thing, right? It was, it's just been something that has, um, has evolved over the years. So I really, I honestly don't recommend that people in early recovery, if they want to, that's fine. I I wouldn't say don't, but it evolved for me. I remember back in early, early recovery, I was one of those people that I would tell the person in the grocery store that I was in recovery because I wouldn't feel. And then that got bitten about on that a few times. Um, And then just over the last few years, it just became, the only thing the way I can explain it is it's just become so big a part of who I am that I don't, separated anymore yeah it's just it's not separate from me and because i am a woman in long-term recovery and i do depending on which program you go to and how they count at the very least i have 13 years absent recovery from all drugs and alcohol yeah if so so i've got a lot i guess i've got some time there so it doesn't bother me but i have witnessed other people who are vulnerable and i would say people who are feeling vulnerable like it's not for everybody i really don't think it is for everybody because we are vulnerable people. I can still really tire a day. I might have been offended by that, or I might have been nervous, or I might have thought, oh, my gosh, they're not going to give me the money, <laughs> or whatever. But, yeah, it's just I have a Facebook page called She Recovers. <laughs> it's, right. Uh, it seems like an, an organic evolution for you. It's not like you said you recover in the 80s and you say, someday I'm going to build it. These things, I don't know if your experience is similar to how we feel, but it almost feels like these things happen to us, not because of us, and that we... Yeah enjoy the unfolding of it and where it's going to go, not necessarily because we're, we have any specific point in mind. It just, it's becoming something that is, has a natural flow to it. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Help others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. 
I do know other people who have been involved in the recovery advocacy movement who do get pushback, and in particular uh-huh. from some of the anonymous programs. And yep. the great thing about Faces and Voices Recovery and is, and I think it's Faces and Voices Recovery, but there's literature out there that talks about anonymity and advocacy. So that people who, you know, who either are getting pushback or who just really want to educate themselves about it. I understand people are completely devoted to their anonymous programs and and very cautious about not wanting to break traditions. Absolutely. Nobody wants to do wreck something that has been working for so many millions of people. But I do encourage people to become educated about these issues before they blast off against those of us who are, who are we're trying to... Here's the thing. In my town, this is what I tell people all the time when they say, why are you doing recovery data? What are you doing that for? And I go, because we know what addiction looks like in our community. We have, we're on the coast. We don't have winter. We have a very high homeless population. We know what addiction looks like on our streets, in our families, in our communities. We don't know what recovery looks like, and that's what we're trying to do. I know that's what you're trying to do. It's a really powering, beautiful thing, and I think that this there's so many different. We're going to share the links to some of the things that we've been talking about today at the end of the show, so that people can investigate them more in their own communities and find out more about what's happening in their own states or their own cities or towns, or even if they want to start something like this. Because I think it's very helpful to know that we're evolving in different ways, but it's not at the exclusion of anybody else. It's all again, like I said, it's not how you recover; it's that you recover. That's the most important thing. Exactly. Right. It seems. To me, that Canada it is or a little bit ahead of us than the United States on this. They seem a little bit more accepting. Is that? Am I getting no. the wrong impression, or is it? Yeah, is it, I'm not sure where you get. Here's what I'll say: is because you have faces and voices of recovery and SAMHSA, and we have a couple of organizations. Like I think we have one national organization, the Drug Prevention something. I'm sorry, I'm not even that familiar with it. I'd say the opposite is true. There are so many recovery walks in September in the United States. Yeah. Every September, like September, you have September, you have recovery month in the States, like September right. is recovery month. So I'm not sure. And we're just new. This is just, we've had one recovery day last year. So I think so, Amanda. Yeah, I know. It may have something to do with, I'm sorry, I don't mean to jump in and interrupt, but I have a dangerously small amount of knowledge about how this works. But from some of the people that I have spoken to in Canada who are seeking treatment, I think it's interwoven in a healthcare policy issue for us here in the U.S. It is extremely difficult to get good treatment here that is affordable and covered by healthcare. Oh, I'm sorry. If you're talking about treatment, that's a little different. I I thought you were talking about advocacy, Amanda. Yeah, and it might, it, that's where that impression comes from of being a little bit more progressive. It comes from. Yeah, the yeah idea I think that so too. Is, and you might think that, you might think that translates into free treatment for all, and it doesn't. <laughs> no. So we have the same difficulty. Same hurdles. Um, yeah. But we so can all think together and make Thanks a difference. Thanks for thinking, Bert. Pretty good. I just wanted to ask, we're getting a little bit low on time, but there's a, one other question at least, and then I'll ask Amanda if she has something else. I just wanted to know about recovery coaching. Tell me about that. Oh, I think that's something yeah. that I'm hearing more and more about, and I'm curious about your journey in it and how one goes about finding out information about that. Sure. When I, what happened? When I got laid off from the job that I loved so much, I realized that I really, why I had worked out that this job that I was in government was it had become such a big part of my identity, hence workaholism, et cetera. But that wasn't actually who I was. And that who I was a woman in recovery, passionate about recovery and wanting to share the message of recovery. I decided that since I had a really nice severance package and I didn't have to work for almost a year, <clears throat> that I would take some training 
And I decided, I looked, I did some research and I decided I would do life coaching to work with people in recovery. And I enrolled in a program called Crossroads Recovery Coaching, which is really the, probably the most renowned recovery coaching school in, in the States. It's run by a woman named who, out of Port Angeles, Washington. And it, it's about a year long training. You meet once, we meet once a week for two hours. Anyway, I've started, I started the training and then we were on hiatus for a while. And now I'm back in the training. I'll be finished in September. To be absolutely honest with you, I'm not sure that I'll become a recovery coach at the end of it. I, I love the idea of coaching. I think I'll always use the tools and I, I may hang out my banner and become a recovery coach, but I'm finding that I really love my research business right now, and it's giving me lots of opportunities and freedom. I can do it anywhere. I'm going to go to Mexico for a couple of months this year again, and, and I just think it's just one of those other, it's a great experience, but what I think it is wonderful for is I hired myself a recovery coach when I got laid off, and I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I worked with a woman who works with women in long-term recovery, women who are at that stage in their recovery where they're asking, okay, now what? Or what next? Or how do I, what do I want, what career do I want to be fully authentic? So I had a great experience working with a coach named Linda Landon out of California. And I'm having a great experience taking the training. And I've learned a lot about the benefit to other women and men as well who are coached. Just a quick thing about coaching is if you're a member of a program, you might have a sponsor or a mentor. You might be a person in recovery that has a therapist or a counselor. Coaching is something different than both those things. A coach is very much focused on goals. And so okay. that goal might be to stay clean and sober. It might be to get clean and sober. It might be to go back to school when you're early in recovery, all those types of things. So you can work with right. the, Most people are familiar with the concept of a life coach. And so what a recovery coach is just either somebody who works with people in recovery who just are working on life issues or a coach will work with somebody who's really wanting to work on their recovery. On the recovery. Um, so if, oh, if I okay. was coaching, I would tell people that they needed their own mentor or sponsor, and they, if they needed therapy, they should get that too. And then I would maybe focus just on getting their them to set and then work towards important goals for themselves. I think it's a really great alternative for people who may not want to engage with some of the other pathways yep. in recovery. Yep. I'm hearing more and more about that in my area also, so I'm, I'm intrigued by that. And yeah, like health coach, it's the same thing. Coaching is the wave of the future, right, I think. I, I believe that it's going to be pretty big. So there are a number of ways. I have some coaches who I'll only put coaches on my website that I've either worked with or trained with or know really well. I think there's only like four on there right now. I haven't had time. To, there are a few others. I just haven't had time to kind of work on the website lately. Um, but people all across Canada and U.S. and elsewhere, can, if you Google recovery coach, you'll find people. And then I like with anything, I think you need to do your research and your homework to make sure, sure. that yeah. people are who they say they are. And most coaches, whether they're recovery coaches or not, will offer free like half-hour coaching introductions. So if I was looking for a coach, when I was looking for a coach, I tried a few out, and I chose Linda because she, I really felt like she was the right coach for me, and she was. So. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Thank you. And so when is the next retreat? We had one last November in Tulum, and then we set one for this coming November in Playa Secreto, Mexico, and that sold out in 39 days. And within wow. the next week or 10 days, I'm going to be launching our third retreat, it will be in Acumal in the Mayan Riviera. Acumal is 
a place where we can actually swim with the turtles. <laughs> so we have wow. a beautiful venue set up there, and I'm going to be, it'll be on She Recovers. I've been teasing people with some pictures on there, and it's a lot of interest generated, so I'm excited. Torturing. I'm sitting here in New England with the rain pouring down, <laughs> the cold wind, and then there's this beautiful picture. Yeah, it'll be great, and I anticipate it'll sell out very quickly as well, and then we'll just get to planning on the fourth one, but it's pretty exciting to be able to be a part of something where I get to go and lie around on a beach with 18 or 20 other women in recovery and sharing circles in the evening and two yoga classes a day and healthy, clean eating, three gourmet meals a day, so yeah, it's a pretty sweet deal for sure. I love it. That sounds so incredibly amazing. Sounds fantastic to me. Yeah, I can't wait to share it with some of you for sure. Oh, definitely, definitely. Amanda, do you have any other questions that you wanted to ask? I don't think so. I'm just like very... They'll think of them when you hang up. (laughs) Yes, I will. I definitely will, but I'm just just really amazed by what you've done and what you're doing, and it's just that's very inspiring to me. And we're talking about the things that we'd like to do as part of Shining Strong, and we're looking at a much smaller scale. And it's just interesting. Before, I guess I really understood what what your retreats were about and what you're doing. We've talked about having just recovery yoga, just small sessions Mm -hmm. in local areas. And so we'd like to do something similar, probably more on a local level. And Mm -hmm. we'll definitely need to pick your brain on that, on how you go about doing it. And I I just think it's wonderful what you're doing. I'm right back at both of you, all of you. Oh. Thank you. But the recovery day up there, and I don't know where I got the impression that Canada had so much more going on, but I just think it's wonderful what you're doing. And we do have one thing we have down here is weekend for, you were talking about recovery month, is called Sober in the Sun, which is just a phenomenal weekend where we could, it's camping and live music, and it's a whole sober weekend thing. And just, I just, hear your what you're doing and all these different ideas and how can we just uh, break down the stigma and show the world what recovery looks like and I just really admire the strides that you've done towards reaching that goal thank you thank you blazing a really wonderful path terrific thank you we'll we'll do some things together Yes. I guess we will. Hopefully on a beach. Well, we'll be I am fine, saving up my bad. pennies for that retreat. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, that's awesome. I just I wanted to share a few of the links and that we talked about on the show this evening, starting with She Recovers, which is www.sherecovers.co. That's correct. Right, Don? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And then the other one that she mentioned is the Faces and Voices of Recovery. This would be for the U.S. That is Faces and, sorry, facesandvoicesofrecovery.org. And also the movie that we mentioned that a few of us went to see, Amanda and I went with some other people this past weekend, it is absolutely phenomenal, is the anonymous, it's theanonymouspeople.com. So you include the www.theanonymouspeople.com. There's a trailer there that you can watch, and they are in the process of also building their website to include additional resources and places that you can go because call to action section of their website, which is wonderful. Don also mentioned... SAMHSA, I don't know if I'm saying it, but it's www.sahmsa.gov. That's the Substance and Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration here in the U.S. And as always, you can find us and listen to this show or any podcast that we've previously recorded at www.thebubblehour.com. And you can also find a tab there with recovery resources both online and off. And highly recommend liking She Recovers. Facebook page. It's awesome. Lots of great inspirational things. 
information that you share on that. So it's, it's just been really wonderful to talk with you, and thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank to. you. We have the same passion, and that is just to let people know what recovery looks like. And from where I'm sitting, looking out there over in New England, it's looking pretty good, looking pretty hot. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right back at you, the feeling is totally That's mutual. <laughs> thank you so much. Awesome. Have a wonderful thank evening, Don. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame. Strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see I did that. Not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Oh, yes, head on. You don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear. You don't need to whisper to confession every ears. The person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror. And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I old, different Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you miss it on When you say I old, different Not proud, but that was me I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power of weakness